FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Zhang coming up with Versity. Uh, today we're going to be talking with the author of a new book called Chinese, The Chinese in America. Uh, welcome, Iris Chang. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, I wanted to start off by um, maybe asking you how you uh, moved from being a reporter to being basically a historian. Well, I had always been um, uh, not, not only an avid reader of history, but also somebody who had studied the techniques of literary journalism or narrative nonfiction, so the transition was not quite as difficult as uh, I would have imagined. We just started uh, here at UCI. We started just started a program in narrative, uh, literary literary fiction, I guess, a literary narrative or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, th so you had taken a writing course, a writing program. Um, you had entered a writing program already. That's right. Yeah. Actually, before I wrote my three books, Thread of the Silkworm, The Rape of Nanking, and As of the Chinese in America, I uh, graduated from a master's degree program at Johns Hopkins University in the graduate writing program. So that uh, was a program that definitely explored literary techniques writing. But how about, um, like, you know, a lot of journalists don't footnote their work. How did you get interested in documenting everything? I always believed it was important to footnote uh, books. I, I would say that as I read um, history or narrative nonfiction, I observed that uh, authors, if they didn't want to actually put numbers, um, you know, footnote numbers in the text itself, they would put them at the end of the book, end notes, you know, with, uh, with a kind of a, a way of letting people know how... Um, you know, to access the uh, the information as well, like with a sentence fragment. So, I I felt it was important that people be able to find my, my original sources, whether it's an oral history or archival document or government report or uh, you know another book. Yeah, I was impressed. You actually uh, went to the National Archives and looked up a lot of stuff. Oh, thanks. Actually, oh, that's one of my favorite places in the whole world. Um, and there was a tremendous amount of material from the National Archives that appeared in my first two books as well. Oh, definitely. The Silkworm and Us and the Rape of Nanking. With the Nanking, uh, the, you know, I used primary source documents, thousands of documents actually from four different languages, English, Chinese, Japanese, and German. And... Uh, the National Archives really is a national treasure, and I, I encourage people to go and visit the archives, whether or not they're pursuing a book or not. Yeah, definitely. Um, for this, uh, why did you embark on this project, focusing on the Chinese in America? I had always been disturbed by a lot of the anti-Chinese stereotypes in the media, and I thought it was high time that uh, we had, uh, you know, a, a one-volume history that would um, narrate the 150-year history of the Chinese immigrant experience uh, in an honest fashion. Obviously, there are a number of other books on the subject of the Chinese in America, but I think uh, this one uh, brings the narrative up to the third millennium. And you, you don't whitewash anything. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I tried to be as fair and as balanced as possible. Everybody who tackles a, you know, a, a subject as broad as this one would come up probably with different interpretations. And, and I think readers will have to recognize that this is my personal interpretation of the 150-year history of the Chinese in America. You're, ho you're focusing on the, a lot of the kind of the bad stuff that happened to people, actually. Bad, but also not just the, 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 the ugly, but also uh, a lot of the um, contributions of the Chinese uh, are depicted in this book as well. And I was actually astounded by the, the uh, extent of the contribution, uh, ranging from building you know, the Transcontinental Railroad to really pushing the forefront of uh, 
of scientific and technical knowledge in this country. Um, for example, I didn't know it was a Chinese man who co-invented the birth control pill and pioneered uh, the field of in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we have, of course, the work of Nobel laureates who, who are deciphering some of the secrets of subatomic you know, particles. And I, I, I wanted people to see just the richness and diversity of the Chinese-American experience. Too often, we have stereotypes that just flatten in a title into a, a cartoon, uh, you know, cartoon image, and uh, yeah. and and that really it doesn't do justice to the, the community. And I also wanted to show in my book how the Chinese endured cycles of persecution and also great acceptance, and and try to show what were some of the economic and political factors that would often lead to. Um, an entire ethnic group being often vilified or scapegoated. It's definitely not a book about model minorities. No, uh, it's not. And actually, there are a lot of, uh, in addition to like the image of uh, of Chinese Americans being model minorities, that this book um, really, I think, shatters the model minority stereotype in showing, first of all, um, often the struggles of of Chinese immigrants who often are ignored or neglected or society, a lot of them are, some of them are here as illegal immigrants and certainly they don't follow, fall in the model minority mode. And then I think even more significantly, the legacy of Chinese American contribution to civil rights activism and, and their um, ability to often challenge uh, government authority, especially when they were being uh, mistreated and persecuted. Um, and even though this may not be seen as typical model minority behavior, I would say this is uh, definitely the kind of behavior, model behavior, that is expected of all responsible American citizens. Uh, many of the rights and privileges that we enjoy today as Americans are a direct result of some of the struggles of, of, of Chinese Americans against injustice. And, I mean, just to give you some, a few examples, you've got Yikwo versus Hopkins, which helped establish the principle of equal protection before the law. Wong Kim Ark versus U.S., which, you know, protects uh, the um, uh, right to birthright citizenship, a very important and landmark ruling. And um, the Chinese were just so much more litigious than I would have expected uh, right back from the beginning when they came to the United States. So it's it's also a history of the resistance. The resistance, and I, more so than resistance, I would actually consider their struggle for democracy, uh, because they were using many of the American institutions and systems of checks and balances in their uh, struggle to um, uphold the American democratic system. Every ethnic group has to do it in their own way, and I think the the Chinese. Um, uh, have a real legacy in civil rights activism that um, isn't really commonly known today. And also, yeah. during the 1960s, um, the Chinese, along with Chinese American students, along with other Asian American students, Native American uh, Indians, uh, Hispanic Americans, African Americans, they created um, an organization called Third World Liberation. Uh, front and uh, pretty much staged the first student strike uh, at San Francisco State, which um, led to the creation of the Ethnic Studies Department there, and then uh, similar strikes would follow at Berkeley and other universities. At uh, when you were studying at Urbana-Champaign, did you were, were there Asian American Studies courses? You know what? I don't really seem to remember <laughs> a lot of them there, and I, uh -huh. I will have to go back and check my old catalogs for that, but I, I, I do not believe there was an Asian American Studies program. Now, I might be wrong, but I don't think there was. Um, I remember there was a Women's Studies program, and I, right. I think there were some other, um, uh, you know, other kinds of programs that were, you know, that that uh, champion multicultural or multi-ethnic uh, diversity, but you know, I don't, I don't really seem to remember a Chinese American studies program at all or an Asian American studies program. 
Were you, were you born here in the U.S.? I was born in the United States, in Princeton, New Jersey, and then I grew up actually in the Midwest, in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, where, which is where my par- parents worked as professors, my father in physics and my mother in microbiology. So uh, did you identify first as Chinese and then as, as Chinese-American or always as Chinese-American? Well, look, I, I see myself ultimately as um, a, a Chinese-American or American, a U.S. citizen of Chinese heritage. And, I, you know, I've always believed that you can really cherish your cultural heritage while also very firmly um, asserting all of your, your rights and privileges as a U.S. citizen. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes people ask, well, do you feel more Chinese or do you feel more American? I mean... You know, my nationality is American, but like many other Americans, I'm also very proud of my heritage as well. Do you, do you identify as Asian American also? Or? Yeah, to a certain degree, yes. I mean, I, I would say, you know, it's a, it's a very broad question, and the, <laughs> the reality is when it comes to who I identify with, it's largely an individual matter. I mean, it, I really look at a person's individual character before I make the decision as to whether I identify with that person. And it's something that transcends, I think, you know, ethnicity mm-hmm. uh, or, or even nationality. Uh, it's it's um, something larger than that. So uh, in terms of the, back to the book, uh, did you... Uh, you, you did it in a chronological kind of way, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, narrative, uh-huh. Yeah, narrative. And uh, were there, what were the things that really struck you when you went into this research that surprised you, maybe? Well, a lot of things surprised me. Um, uh, well, what, one thing was, one thing that did surprise me was how, um, like the Chinese, they didn't always experience the same level of racism throughout history. Instead, it would, they would experience cycles of acceptance and abuse, and at sometimes they would actually be greatly, you know, admired and welcomed and nurtured, and at other times they would be vilified and even killed. And I began to see how their mistreatment at certain times in history were often linked to uh, economic or political crises or the state of Sino-American relations mm-hmm. rather than just simply, you know, the fact that they look different. Now, the reason I believe that is because, you know, there, there were two, there were, have you heard of the Bunker Twins, the, the, the Siamese twins yeah. who were of ethnic, of Chinese ethnicity? Well, they, they actually not only were Chinese, but they also had uh, probably the most unusual kind of appearance that you could imagine. They had, they had, uh, they shared a liver and also a five-inch ligament of flesh mm. that connected their torsos. And so, um, they, uh, they, strangely enough, settled down in um, like the South, the American South, Wilkesboro, North Carolina, uh, before the Civil War, and they. And you'd think that they would probably not be accepted in a region which, of course, was extremely racist and, uh, and, and was a slave-owning region. Yet, because the Chinese were not an economic threat there, the bunkers were very greatly accepted by that community. They married white women. They fathered 21 children between the two of them. And they also had their own plantation, complete with 33 black slaves. In fact, they were so well accepted by the white plantation slave-owning elite in that region that when their two eldest sons came of age, they enlisted in the Confederate Army and fought in the Civil War. Wow. So, yeah, and actually, sometimes the, the, the regions where the Chinese were clustered in the most, like California, is where they experienced the worst anti-Chinese sentiment because they really were a huge economic or political threat to white workers there. So that... So often just being unique or different in a region was not enough to mm-hmm. be persecuted. I think that you, ha- you really need something else. And, um, and so, like, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act really grew out of the, the economic depression of the 1870s. And a lot of the other anti-Chinese backlashes that were experienced by the community in the U.S. were usually tied to some very specific reason, like the, uh, you know, like McCarthyism or the... Uh, you know, the, you know the, the fact that China turned communist in 1949. There was 
there was a that the the, the Korean War all, all of that led to actually a bad period for Ch Chinese Americans uh, in the 1950s. Do you think uh, of it as a bad period now? Again, well, uh, it's it's kind of, it. it uh, I would say that we were leading up to something that I, I found pretty disturbing in the 1990s, where that we had the Cox report on alleged Chinese espionage, which, by the way, was riddled with mistakes, but really tried to, you know, tried to make unsubstantiated claims that China had been spying on the U.S. for all these decades. We had the Wen Ho Lee case. Um, we had a Time Magazine article in the late 1990s that predicted there was going to be a new Cold War with China, and I felt that China was being groomed as a new enemy, and then suddenly the heat on China and Chinese Americans shifted quite dramatically, actually, with the terrorist attacks on, uh, you know, on, on the Pentagon and, uh, you know, the World Trade Center in, in, on 9-11. Then, the, the new, you know, the new enemy was the Middle East, and yeah. very quickly, Middle Eastern Americans and, you know, immigrants started feeling victimized. And it's interesting how, it, you know, the, the cycles of acceptance and abuse that, that, that I found in the, my research on Chinese Americans applies to a lot of other ethnic groups as well, because suddenly, the, yeah. the, the you know, the, the Muslim American community was often feeling, uh, you know, scapegoated for facts beyond their control as well. Uh, South Asians, especially, yeah. yeah. So, um, but, so there, were a lot of, there were a lot of things that um, were, were surprising to me. But getting back to like the, um, the early part of the history of the Chinese in America, in my book, I, I was actually very surprised um, by the Chinese experience in the American South, not just with the Bunker Twins, but the fact that they were very successful, uh, you know, in, in certain industries there, and the fact, too, that that actually the Chinese were first brought to the South as, you know, by Southern planters who hoped to replace um, black slavery with Chinese labor. Mm. And as you may remember reading in my book, The Chinese in America, uh, the, the, that, that attempt yeah. failed because the Chinese hired bilingual interpreters to negotiate their contracts, and if the planters violated them, they, they didn't hesitate often to take them to court. So what, what year was that? That was in the 19th century, and, and mm -hmm. shortly after the Civil War. And soon the Chinese went into, the, um, into retail, and the Chinese store would become a fixture in most uh, you know, southern towns. And the intriguing thing about the system of slavery, that even when it was demolished, uh, it, it uh, still left the South in a state that did not really embrace capitalism, that was still, it was still had a very feudal mindset. So neither whites nor blacks often were really encouraged to go into, um, in, into retail. And hmm. what I found was that... Um, White men often did not want to start their own grocery stores because it might mean waiting on black customers, and they found that demeaning, even if it was going to be profitable. Was, there, was there also a gender thing that they thought of it as a a, a feminine kind of thing to well, serve somebody? Well, I think it's, it's just that the, the, the whole system of slavery did not cultivate hmm. a capitalist tradition out in, in the South, so, um, so people... Um, they felt that somehow people who were in service industries were waiting on people and that there was a real stigma associated with trade, even if it was profitable. Uh, I think they were still viewing um, transactions in terms of, you know, master-slave. And, and black men who started their own stores ran the risk of being assaulted and killed because, because the, you know, black entrepreneurial success was a threat to the white system and also hmm. would be viewed as kind of uppity if they did succeed economically. So it seemed as if no one really had complaints of a third party, the Chinese, coming in and, and working in retail. And they were so successful at it that very quickly the Chinese income was twice the, that of the white median income. And the Chinese store would often be the only place in town that was fully integrated where whites and blacks could go together to shop. 
when when you went and looked back at this research, uh, were you looking at what other people had already written, or how did you do this research? Well, I, I was synthesizing some of the existing scholarship and research. I was also doing some of my own research through archival research and also through um, through interviews as well. Oh, yeah. So, but it is a very broad subject, and and it was. Yeah. What was very difficult was not so much finding information, but rather what to leave out of my book, *The Chinese in America*, yeah, a narrative history. But it was, um, but it was a real journey, not just, you know, not just for the Chinese over the 150 years, but also for myself. Do you, do you read Chinese? And um, I, you know, I I had taken courses before, and I could get to the point yeah. where I could read before, sh like simple short stories. And it's actually, I'm afraid it's declined since then. I feel <laughs> what is required is often a cram course, and usually I can get back up to speed. Um, and I, I do want to also tell your listeners um, that I will be actually signing uh, and, and appearing in, in California. Is it all right if I discuss some of the Yeah, just on the air? The, well, where the locations are, or we could do it at the end too. Sure. Uh, yeah. Well, just briefly, I could just say this evening I'm going to be speaking at the Fremont Main Library at 2400 Stevenson Boulevard in Fremont, and that's going to be at 7:30 p.m. And that's in Fremont, California, Northern California. Then um, on June 23rd, on Monday, I'm going to be speaking in um, Cupertino in the evening and it's going to be 7 p.m. at the Cupertino, Cupertino Senior Center and the address 21251 Stevens Creek Boulevard. There's a definitely a lot of, a lot of uh, Asians living out there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, when you were in Southern California, was it last week? Uh, what was the turnout like? Excuse me, you said... When you were in Southern California, what was the turnout like? When you what were was the Chinese community like? No, what was the turnout oh. in the bookstores that you spoke oh, at? Oh, you mean when I was in Southern, Southern California? Yeah, in it, Southern California. Oh, yeah, it was great. I, I was, um, I mean, uh, I, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, like, the, I, was, I spoke at the Pacific Asia Museum in Pasadena. Oh, yeah. And then I spoke uh, at, you know, the, the Barnes & Noble in Westwood. Uh, and then I was in, in the D.G. Wills bookstore in La Jolla, and each time when I was out there, uh, the bookstores were all, like, standing room only. It was, like, packed to overflowing. Wow. There were a lot of people, you know, standing in the aisles. So that was great. How long has it has the book been out? Uh, it's been out for a few weeks. Yeah. So it hasn't been out that long. The, uh, it's a massive book, you know, it's uh, almost 500 pages, mm -hmm. and uh, with, you know, maybe 100 pages of footnotes. Right. And, uh, and uh, did you have to struggle to uh, get your editors to allow the footnotes in there, or did they agree to that? Oh no, they they didn't they didn't struggle. Uh, you know, Viking Penguin uh, is a very respectable, um, serious publisher, and they they you know they they put out the Penguin Classics, and they uh, they recognize the need for serious nonfiction and literary nonfiction. So, and they put out important histories all the time sure. so th I mean definitely they they wanted and expected footnotes um, right. but, but not every publisher necessarily would right, right. so it's, it's very, you know I'm very fortunate because this particular publishing house has not has a literary and scholarly tradition in addition to being you know also a major commercial house so yeah yeah I mean, not not every not not every publisher has those priorities. Did you index it yourself, or? Oh no, no, they hired an indexer. No, no, thank God, I didn't have to index it myself. I I asked because I I do freelance indexing. I have. It's very. I can imagine how difficult. I know. It would be. The last one was took like months, I think. <laughs> it yeah, I, I, I remember. No, the talking with the. Uh, indexer because indexer had questions, but it's oh. all I can think of is it, this is such that this is a really difficult job. Yeah, um, yeah. They have to be so meticulous and so thorough, and um, yeah, they're they're really worth worth their weight and gold. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, you're listening to Subversity here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KCI. Uh, the number here is 949-824-5824. 949-824-5824. And you can also listen to this on the web at KUCI.org. Um, uh, so, Cora, if you want to talk with our guests, we're talking with Iris Chen, who's the author of a new book, The Chinese in America from Viking, uh, The Chinese in America. Um, so, call 949-824-5824. Uh, what, what's your family think about uh, the book? Oh, they, they, they like it. Uh, they are, they're very happy with it. And, um, uh, you know, actually... A few. I, I actually interviewed some of my own family members too yes. to get their thoughts on the Chinese American experience. So they were only a few of many people that I talked with. So they, the, they weren't afraid you're going to put in some family dirty laundry or something. No, you know, I, I <laughs> think that you know, my family, uh, we we leave pretty, you know. Serene, peaceful. I, 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 I don't. I mean, <laughs> um, I, I I think we would have to really look really hard, uh, you know, for uh, there there was just in terms of you know um, family secrets. No, I, I I couldn't think of anything like that. But there were some interesting, um, I would say, like experiences that they had just yeah. fleeing China and just you know some of the early experiences here. And um, you also have to consider, too, that uh, when, when interviewing people, you have to think, what are some of the few stories that would illustrate a time and a place? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you can't, because the subject is so broad, go into too much detail, detail often on like a one specific episode. It's like following, it's like traveling down a river of history and you might yeah. spend a few moments lingering you know, your eye or some, some, you know, object in your view, but you still have to move on. So, so on the all the notes and all the all the you know tapes and whatever that you gathered, are you gonna put it in a uh, library somewhere or eventually? Oh, you mean all my all my resources? Yeah, your research. Um, and, yeah, and you know, I think uh, what I did, you know, with my first book is that I donated a lot of files to like uh, to a university library. Uh, it was UCSB, and then like, um, and sometimes there are files that I'll still be using, so I don't donate them to a right. university libraries immediately. I mean, and several universities have asked for the files for the rape of Van King, um, and um, and then for this one, you know, I I have you know just hundreds of dissertations and books and sure. manuscripts and interviews. Did but I have determined what I'm going to do with all of them, and like whether I'm going to give them all to a library, or whether you know I will give or donate portions of some of my files to certain libraries. Because some some libraries have different strengths than others, so I, I have to I have to give this some thought. So the UC Santa Barbara, there's no, it's not an ongoing commitment to them. No. Uh, no. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty much what I have chosen to give give to them, but no, there is no. There's no commitment that for the rest of my life I have to do <laughs> everything. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I mean, uh-huh. they would prefer, I think, that I would give, uh, you know, continue to give them documents. And, and no doubt I will. Um, they, they're, they're a wonderful university and archives. Um, it's, it's just that, um, like, a lot of the files I still have, they're still active files. Sure, sure. You know, sometimes I keep them in storage before I, uh, before I you know, donate them to an archive. So um, uh, back to the book, um, you, you focus a lot on the um, on the spy scandal, also the spy the yeah. Wen case, and uh, uh-huh. do you th- do you feel that that um, that could be a recurring thing with kind of changes in foreign policy and stuff? I I think that um, that these suspicions of Chinese Americans or Chinese immigrants committing espionage will intensify whenever uh, the U.S. government is concerned about uh, 
uh, the power of, you know, mainland China, the People's Republic of China. And that, you know, at, at certain times in history, there's often been a great deal of fear and paranoia within the U.S. of the PRC, and other times that that fear dissipates because of better relations between the two countries. So it's a cyclical, uh, cyclical pattern. You mentioned the blue team. Uh, yeah. And is that that's a group of uh, neocon or conservatives who tried to target uh, China as this future threat. Right. Um, as this ongoing. And, and I really believe that this came about as a result of the disintegration of the former Soviet Union. That um, that left a real big gaping hole in the you know military industrial complex. And, yeah. Yeah. And. Um, and in our power void, and, and China was our number two, su you know, superpower. And so, ironically, China—the relationship between the United States and China—is a unique one now, in that they are probably our great business partner, but also our great rival too. But also, maybe an ally in fighting terrorism in some sense. Yeah, it's, it's a complex relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you know what happened to the blue team? Is, uh, do they still exist or what? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's still, I mean, the same individuals are still there in, right. in uh, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. So. They're, still, they're still coming out with books on China. That's correct. Yeah. And so, um, and they probably get, you know, I mean, you would think George Bush would listen to them, I suppose, but... <laughs> yeah. um, are you worried about the current government uh, in terms of uh, kind of race relations? There have been some disturbing, um, I think, developments uh, in U.S. society, uh, in, I feel, just the last few months. Um, and I, I, I do feel that, uh, at times that... Uh, we just we just have to be vigilant as American citizens to ensure that you know the civil liberties of all Americans are being protected in this country. And uh, I, I was pretty disturbed a few months ago when you know Representative Coble made a comment uh, yeah. that seemed to endorse or or you know try to uh, that seemed to approve of the just uh, the the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World right. War II, and he said something to the effect that some of these Japanese Americans were probably intent on doing harm to us, just as some of these Arab Americans are probably intent on doing harm to us. So I, it just seems to me that there's been a pattern, you know, of behavior, you know, in 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 our government that that seems to want to look for some of the most shameful episodes of our history, you know, as an attempt to justify present policies in the name of security. And um, I just think that we have to be very, very careful not to engage in any kind of racial profiling or, um, or, or, or to scapegoat any any particular ethnic group and to pass laws that would abridge the rights of various groups because in the end these laws are going to affect us all as Americans. But they've already done that uh, with the Patriot Act and with all these uh, you know imprisonment of U.S. citizens in camps and I mean prisons and uh, yes, as enemy combatants. There, there have been some very shocking I think transgressions on on uh, individual uh, civil liberties and uh, and I think as Americans we, we, we have every right to be concerned. How does this, uh, how does your book address the issue of the image of Asians as this quiet minority? Well, you know, it, it explores how, how there are stereotypes, you know, in, in the mass media of the Chinese being, you know, quiet, docile, and meek, but the reality seems to suggest that they were never that way and that they were always very active in either in, you know, in fighting for their rights, 
and and I do think that you, you know to this day there's a sense among people that somehow that the Chinese are politically apathetic and and I do think that the legacy like the fact that some Chinese uh, immigrants you know ha have actually been uh, influenced by uh, by you know by their parents in not pursuing political careers has something to to do with that I mean. Uh, many, many, ch like actually Chinese American immigrants, and I would say that my parents are among them, were told explicitly by their parents to never pursue a career in politics because actually the, hmm. my, my mother's father, my father's father were, you know, they, they had to flee the country because of the communist revolution. And, yeah. um, and I think a lot of Asian American families you know, they're here because because of, of the, po the political conditions in their um, their ancestral homeland, and they've seen firsthand that politics, often in you know in like mainland China or Taiwan, can be lethal. There was also a kind yeah, of sure. a white terror period in in the 1950s under Jiang Shek, uh, in which people who criticized the government, I mean, could be jailed or even you know they would just disappear. Yeah. And so, um, so I, I think all of this would add, would, would then encourage people because of the legacy of these, this, these political realities, to pursue like non-political or scientific careers. But I think there's also another reason why the Chinese, though they've succeeded, I think they've made enormous strides academically intellectually, economically, that they still have, there's a real compelling reason why they still have a long way to go in the political arena, and this reason is that they've, that we've lost a lot of, um, like, political clout as a result of the Chinese Exclusion Act, and um, after Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, uh, you know, the Chinese could not immigrate to this country in large numbers because the laborers were not allowed to come to this country. But Chinese merchants, diplomats, and scholars, like certain ex groups of Chinese, were exempt, but their numbers were small. Yeah. So that while other ethnic groups were coming to the U.S. in huge numbers, the Chinese community and Chinese-American community in the U.S. actually shrank during that time. And in fact, by the early 20th century, there were only a few tens of ch thousands of Chinese in the whole continental U.S. in a minuscule, small number. I mean, the numbers of Chinese still aren't that large. There's about three million now, but that's still only about one percent of the population. But because of this, then the Chinese lost, I think, uh, almost a century of, of like political mobilization and infrastructure building because of the because of the laws that would prevent large-scale immigration from China. You know, the new census data shows that by the next census, uh, the argument is that the Chinese will be eclipsed among Asian groups by people who are Asian and other, and other like Hapa or kind of mixed-race people yes, or, I, or I mixed do, ethnicity people. I do believe that uh, that the whole uh, the racial complexion of the country will change, and then therefore new definitions of what it of what it means to be, you know, white will change. And uh, you know, already like the Hapas, you know, the mixed race Asians, they're starting that that uh, phenomenon used to be more rare, but now it's I think it's rapidly becoming the norm. And uh, I think we may see more. Uh, you know, people who who have the background of like a Tiger Woods, uh, in in uh, you know in, in generations to come. Tiger Woods, I think, is yeah. he has uh, African, Chinese, Thai blood. I mean, just a whole whole mix. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you, in terms of uh, back on the book, um, when you talk about the uh, the different decades and different uh, periods. Is there a kind of a linear trend or something like that? Excuse me? Is there a linear trend to the whole history? Yeah, I a think linear for, for a trend, what trend. Trend. Uh, is it Are things getting better or is it, I mean, is it always getting better or is it no, up and I, down? No, that, that's, that's, I, I, don't, I don't believe it's, it's linear. I think it's cyclical. Ah. I think it, it doesn't, it's not like it was horrible 
you know, in the 19th century and then kept moving upward in a linear sense until the Chinese yeah. are now where they are as model minorities. <laughs> no, because I, I think it's, it's it, you see, the Chinese, when they first came in large, in, in, you know, in larger numbers uh, during the California Gold Rush, when they first arrived, they were actually warmly welcomed, and then, you know, as their numbers grew, then there was a backlash against them. But uh, I, I, I would really, you know, when I, uh, when I look at some of the experiences of the Chinese who came before the, the California Gold Rush, it wasn't all entirely negative. So I, I, I think that uh, it really does take like an economic or political crisis, such as, you know, a depression or a war, often. To, to cause some of the scapegoating that I describe in, in my book. Do you think the, you know, the UC Berkeley Chancellor wanted to exclude uh, Asian uh, students from Hong Kong and China uh, because of the SARS thing? Well, Do you think that you consider that like a Chinese exclusion thing? Well, I just think it was a knee-jerk reaction on the part of Berkeley, which, um, and, which reflected, I think, kind of unconscious bias. You see, when they banned uh, students from four Asian countries from their summer school programs, a policy by which, by, by the way, they've rescinded, right. um, that, that those countries included China, Taiwan, Singapore, and Hong Kong. And it was just unusual to me to see that they did not include Canada in the ban, even though a number of people have already died in Toronto. They, they had already died from SARS. When they when they announced that ban, yeah, yeah. So um, that's true. Huh. And I, you know, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that discussed Berkeley and also the legacy of of medical discrimination in this country M medical against, against the Chinese. Ah. Um, and you know, and while I was writing it, Berkeley was already. I think Berkeley had already changed their policy. Um, what, you know, ready, they, they, they decided to let some students come, but they would be closely monitored by, you know, camp authorities. But then as the controversy deepened, uh, Berkeley reversed itself entirely. Now I think they're entirely back to their pre-SARS right. policy. And um, it's just, it's, it's just uh, I think, unfortunate that they used a wholesale ban instead of some systematic medical process to, you know, to screen for SARS. You know, in terms of uh, also researching for the book, did you use community archives a lot? I know you, you went to a lot of uh, Chinese uh, historical society mm -hmm. archives and stuff. Yeah. Which, which ones did you like? Uh, did you were you uh, kind of taken with by? I some in San Diego. I went and looked at a lot of the oral histories that were available in Los Angeles. Yeah. There was also one. There was a museum of the Chinese in the Americas out in New York. New York, yeah. There was, and then the National Archives out in Washington D.C. and San Bruno had a lot of case studies. So did uh, the National Archives Division in Chicago. And then there were like just private collections that existed huh. around the country. Are they just in people's homes now? Or? Hmm? Are they in people's homes? Yeah, some of those people would write to me and send me things too. Mm -hmm. uh, are you aware that the National Archives is running out of space and they're, they're thinking of destroying uh, Chinese immigration records from 1940 on? Are, is this a current issue now? I heard that there were some rumors that they were thinking about moving some of those records from San Bruno to another facility. I have not heard any reports that they were going to destroy them. Is that, is, is well, they're slated for destruction. I talked to some San Bruno National Archives people at the Asian American Studies uh -huh. Conference in San Francisco about yeah. weeks ago, uh -huh. two weeks ago, and they they say this uh, Congress hasn't given them any more money. So they, they're able to save the San Bruno um, office, the archives there. You know, the, that's going to stay open. But uh, they don't know about the, you know, there's apparently thousands of, hundreds of thousands of boxes. Well, what, what are they going to do with those boxes? Case files. Case files. The case files, they, um, yeah, I know there's been some controversy around that. I, have they decided then what they're going to do to them? Uh, they're still slated for destruction at this point. I think historians need to speak out. You mean just recently? They, made, they said that they were going to destroy them? Well, they've always been slated for destruction. They don't keep everything. 
So the question is what what they would keep. And they don't have any room, so that, uh, that's the argument they give. So. Well, I think what they need to do then is to, you know, what the, maybe they don't want to even open it up to the public either because they're afraid of violating people's privacy. 1940? I thought uh, there was some discussion about moving them inland. Uh, yeah, there was, uh, but even there they would have need money to do that, I guess, to store them in, in some, you know, some uh, climate-controlled archive somewhere, on the mountains or somewhere, on their caves or somewhere, I'm not you sure. You have some information, the latest information on that, I, I, I would... Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna try to write to them. The guy actually pointed it out in a, huh. in a, in some report that they had Can put out. Can you send that to me? I'll look for it. Uh, we have, they have put out a couple of guides on Chinese, uh, Chinese and, uh, Chinese records, you know, records on Chinese in San Bruno. Mm-hmm. and stuff, uh, so that they just have some new guides that just came out a few months ago, and I think one of them, um, I was standing at the exhibit area, and the guy was pointing to some paragraphs saying that they are still slated for destruction. When would this destruction be, did they say? Well, I think it's, what, 72 years after the event, so it'd be, it'd still be, you know, uh, you know, in the year 2000-something, but 2000 and 20 or something, whatever. Uh, so, 2010, um, I guess, 12. It would be 20, 72 years. So, so, in other words, it would not. this would not happen for another decade or so? Probably, I think. But the problem, he was saying that the 1945s even would have, uh, would have, uh, could have uh, case files, you know, from earlier years that were slipped in with the uh, current... Have they destroyed anything yet, or they're just talking about it? Uh... I mean, there are a lot of stuff is destroyed already, of course. I mean, they don't keep everything, <laughs> so they tell me. So, uh, but the, on, on the 1940s stuff, that that's just the, the plan, I guess. And, uh, yeah, so it's a serious thing. Because, you know, mm-hmm. that's when the exclusion acts, uh, that's when China, you know, uh, was on the side of the U.S., nationalist China, and so they... They ended the exclusion, you know, mm-hmm. in the 40s, I guess, by the 40s. And so people started reapplying for right. citizenship. So those records, I think, are especially interesting. They are interesting, and I, I think that... Um I think that they should ultimately belong to the people who generated them and, and their families hmm. or, or at least be somehow made available to the public. And uh, whatever, I, I think that the public should be consulted before they just start slating things for destruction. Do send me information on this. I, I'm really fascinated. Yeah, and, I know, was kind of surprised to hear that from the you know, mouth of an archivist. You know, I hope the Chinese in America will have, will be revised, I'm sure, over time, and they'll be updated um Editions, and that's why I think it's, uh, you know, for my own purely selfish reasons, I, I, yeah. I believe very firmly in the preservation of historical documents. Oh, definitely. But, I mean, but it's also important, I think, for the rest of our society as well. I guess the question from an uh, archivist's point of view is, what is important, I guess? Right. So, yeah, so th- we have to convince them that it's, it's important. No question of it. Did you... F- uh, but you, when you were doing your research, of course, you, you had the help of historians and uh, at the National Archives and other people that mm-hmm. that, that knew the importance of this this type of material. Mm-hmm. And so, um, d- did you, were there are any records you tried to get that you couldn't get? No, I, I would say that most of the records I was looking for, um, I could get. I mean, they were just sometimes harder to find, and you had to go... And, look at finding aids, and sometimes even the finding aids themselves were not the only finding aids that you would need. You'd have to, you had to do a lot of digging through microfilm just to even find the right, uh-huh. you know, accession numbers. So how long There were you, boxes yeah. they brought out oh, sure, sure. that no one had looked at for a century or more. <laughs> how, how long did, you, did the research for this book take? You know, at least three years of research and writing, but, you know, I, I did not start this book until, like, I, I there was so much interest in the rape of Nan King. I was touring, it seemed like, for about a, at least a year. All right. And yeah. then, then I, then it was no, another three years of research and writing this one, and then usually there's a whole production and editing process, so, so it's, um, but, you know, I, but I know that it was at least three years of research and writing. 
And you had people help you, right? With, uh, well, I did the research myself. Oh, I did benefit one, yeah. from the help of professional archivists yeah, yeah. Uh, who, you know, and government historians. Uh, but I didn't hire people to do the research for me. I did it myself. Uh, on the on the other book, on the rape of Nanking, I I was thinking, you know, you mentioned uh, some of the footage that was taken, that was smuggled out of Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, not sorry, smuggled into Nazi Germany, as you are aware. What happened to all those uh, films? Some of the film footage you could still find, like at the National Archives. Uh -huh. Some the the families, um, the families themselves have some of the footage wow. too. And the footage has later been used by documentary filmmakers. Right, right. Uh, and, and, and it's available for viewing. There's a documentary called In the Name of the Emperor. There's another one called The Rape of Ning King. There's still another one called The Clegui's Testament. There's a number of them out there that, that use some of the old historical film footage on the, on the Rape of Ning King. So, what, uh, you know, if you compare the two or the three books, which one um, were you most. Or is it most uh, kind of intrigued by? All, all of, every book I write is different <laughs> in their its own way, and I, I it's I find all of them intriguing, really. So, um, which one took the longest then? Uh, the research on this one. Yeah. The last one. Oh. oh. On the first book, you wrote about the silk, uh, about the missile. Um, yeah. The man who created the missile. That's for the maybe, Chinese. You know, that took about three years. Too, of research or writing. Was that, uh, well, did you run into more problems getting records because of the national security basis? Harder to get information, but yet, since the subject is more specific because it's on one person in his life, it was often easier to structure. The more focused did the subject matter, then the more the research process is a period of discovery sure. rather than that of synthesis and yeah, impression. Yeah. And I would say that. Definitely for my first two books, uh, Thread of the Silkworm and also the, the Rape of Nanking, I would discover new materials that ho often had not been widely known, uh, you know, that, that yeah. e either that were in private collections or just, or didn't exist in any collection because they, they were oral history interviews that came right from the mouths of some of the survivors right. who, would, who would live through those, the, those times. Uh, with something like the Chinese America, since it's so broad, you know, 150 years of the history of a, of a immigrant group, you know, and, and, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands and millions of people, then it becomes less a process of great discovery and more of compression yeah, and distilling. Yeah. But even then, I found there were a lot of surprises lurking about. So it was still, um, they were not maybe news, you know, um, breaking news types of discoveries, like mm -hmm. finding the... Nazi diaries associated with the rape of Nanking, but yeah. they were another form of discovery, like a personal discovery. Like, I mean, just little gems. I, I didn't, for example, I didn't know that it was a Chinese chemist who invented powdered milk or a mm -hmm. Chinese horticulturalist who oh, yeah. pioneered the citrus industry in Florida. And I, I, I also didn't know that, like, the reason why so many Chinese went into the laundry industry, I mean, the, the fact that during the gold rush, so many, there were people who would, um, they, <laughs> the miners didn't want to do their laundry, and they would, they would ship it to Asia, and it would take four months for it to get, for the laundry to be washed and to be returned mm -hmm. to the miners, and so a lot of Chinese, being entrepreneurial, uh, stepped in and, and saw a market need and did it to make a profit. So there were just a lot of things I didn't know. I didn't know, for example, that, uh, that the, the prevalence of interracial marriage between Chinese men and Irish women in the 19th century. Um, there, there were just a lot of things that were just surprised me. Or even the fact that, you know, you know, just how difficult it was for Chinese people, Chinese actors and actresses to get roles yeah. in movies, even when the theme was about China. Like Anna Mae Wong, the sure. leading Chinese-American movie star at the time, could not even get a decent part in the film adaptation of The Good Earth, I mean, things like that. You know, I saw a picture of her uh, in the uh, Berlin Museum of uh, Movies uh, with her next to uh, Lini Rosenfeld. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, she got uh, some major roles over there, I mm -hmm. guess. Right. In major, in major films, yeah, okay. that were um, uh, Hollywood types, yeah. Exactly. But the... Um, 
but you know, did you use much of the Freedom of Information Act? I did for my yeah. first book. I filed yeah. a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests on Dr. Tian Hushen, who was that brilliant Caltech aerodynamicist who was the subject of my first book. He was a co-founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and then was falsely accused of being a communist and then deported to China against his will in the 1950s, where he then later, you know, masterminded the development of the Red Chinese Ballistic Missile Program. But, um, you know, it wasn't, I didn't even get, I got, I found a lot of records such as FBI files on Dr. Tsen in the course of my research. But, you know, I'm still getting materials that are being declassified by the government. From that time. Yeah, yeah and sometimes it's like, it's already been... Ten years, I think. Yeah, and, uh, and sometimes it's like the book, the first book's already finished, the second book's, well, now the third book's finished, and I'm still getting material. <laughs> and, I mean, so it's a good thing I didn't wait. You know, I just, when I felt I had enough information, yeah, I, I just went ahead and wrote it. But uh, I remember they were going what they they have to go through and decide what to declassify. I remember calling over to the FBI and asking about the files, and they said, oh, yeah, we're aware that your first book, you know, well, that is what I would, they said, we've been using it in the declassification process. <laughs> so, and it, it, just, it was so ridiculous. Is and, the, uh, they just use it to see what's public. It's funny, the FBI, the, his, the, 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 the declassification process, it's not like the investigative branch. It's so circular. They contacted me and said, we're trying to get your new address. We sent the file to your old address, and it came back to us. I said, well, you're the FBI, and you're saying you don't know where you live right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> so, um, but no, I mean, it's just that they, they still yeah. go through the request, but it, it does take a very, very long time. Oh, and uh, before I forget, I, I, I do want to let your listeners know about a few of the other events I'm having in California. Can I repeat those on the air right now? Sure, sure. Okay, I, okay. Um, I'm going to be signing copies of The Chinese in America, A Narrative History, and, and also I think The Rape of Nanking, if they sell, sell them uh, at these events, at, at the following locations. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at the Fremont Main Library uh, tonight at 7.30 p.m., and that's going to be at 2400 Stevenson Boulevard in Fremont, California. That's Northern California. And then on Monday, June 23rd, I'm going to be, uh, you know, in Cupertino, and uh, uh, and I'm I'm going to be uh, at um, pretty much, uh, you know, at the Cupertino Senior Center at 7 p.m. Uh, giving a lecture and signing books. That the address there is 21251 Stevens Creek Boulevard. So that's Monday, June 23rd, Cupertino Senior Center. Uh, 21251 Stevens Creek Boulevard. Uh, do you have a website? Uh, um, yeah, I, I do. And, and, and actually, um, it's irischang.net. Oh, okay, great. Uh, actually, we're up at the end of our time. So I want to thank you, Iris, for being on the show. Oh, thank you so okay. much. And, and uh, I'll uh, let I, you know when we archive this on the net. Yeah, and I'll keep in touch. Yeah, okay. please, please do. And uh, love to get a copy of this uh, interview afterwards. Okay. Sure, thank right. you. Bye-bye. Take care now. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, that was uh, Iris Chang, the author of uh, The Chinese in America from Viking Press, uh, out uh, this year, uh, last few months, um, uh, a history of the Chinese in America. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.